And uh, these two last two weeks, I've been able to uh, just have two sermons, not part of a series, but two important topics to talk about and uh, to think about as we look to, uh, hopefully you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 23 through 27, and uh, looking at those verses there. And um, as you are turning there as well, um, they have all sorts of studies that they do. And uh, one of the studies um, that was actually a study done uh, in England at a college, it was a, uh, led by a man named Dr. Edward Gray um, of fly neuroscience. And so they studied uh, flies and they studied their brains to figure out what was the most effective way to kill a fly, right? And so you say, well, that's not a big deal. Well, you've probably never been to middle Alabama like me to have a potluck dinner and look over and say, why do they have raisins in their potato salad? Only to realize that those are not raisins, that those are flies. And when you shoo them away, they come back. And uh, apart from having fun with your buddy having a fly on his back to slap him in the back of the head or on the back, uh, effectively killing a fly was one of their studies, uh, goals of their study. And so he realized that in a fly's brain, uh, that their nervous system um, gets so overloaded by several different directions of approaching things uh, that it actually immobilizes the fly. It paralyzes them. And so um, they found out if you take a piece of tissue for uh, you germ freaks as well, or your hands if you'd like to, and approach the fly at the same time, two different directions, that it will sometimes render that fly, uh, render that fly uh, paralyzed and not knowing what to do and so overwhelmed of all these things approaching it, it gives you just that split moment to be able to squash the fly or to um, smash the fly. And it is unable to use its best approach or best defense to fly off. And uh, unfortunately for us as Christians, many times we are like that fly, right? Uh, we have life begins to throw so much stuff at us. Like you got things from your family, you got things from your job, you got things from our country, you got things from church, and it comes at you so fast that sometimes, like that little fly, we just become immobilized. Like we don't pray, we don't seek God, we don't, like we don't go to the Word, we just become immobilized and fear strikes us and it just leaves us there to be enemies or, or to be easy pickings for the devil. And so we as Christians should not be ones that are like the fly. We as Christians should not live in fear. We as Christians should have a, 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 an able response of choosing to live for God and choosing faith over fear. And at the end of the day, for us as Christians, we choose fear. We don't have to have fear in our life, but yet as we, as we look away from uh, God and we look to our situations and circumstances, it overwhelms us to where our only response is paralyzed and we live a life full of fear rather than faith. And if you could just imagine a moment, your life fully free of fear of how you could accomplish God's will for your life. Like if you knew that God, uh, you had so much faith in God that you can live in such a way that everything that God has called you to do, that you would be able to do it. And in our world today, uh, it's important because, you know, everyone has something to be fearful of. Like in our country, we've been fearful of the virus, of coronavirus. In our country, we've been fearful of school violence. In our country, we've been fearful of what may happen to the family in a home. And you got all sorts of questions as parents, as, as husband and wife, like what does our family look like? Where are we going to move? Can we even afford housing, right? I mean, can we afford gas to even go look at housing, all right? Can we afford groceries? What, what are we going to 
going to do? And when we look at all these situations as Christians, sometimes it grips us with fear and there's a lot of things to be fearful. And if you're not fearful, let me just encourage you to watch 30 minutes of the news, okay? And when you get done with that news, you're going to find plenty of things to be fearful of and plenty of things that we can be overloaded from. And so what does fear do when it comes into our life? It destroys our peace. It destroys families. It destroys marriages. It destroys communities. There is nothing good that comes out of fear. I cannot imagine one life or what one family or one situation where they said, I'm so glad we had fear in this situation. And for us as Christians, we can have a life free of fear. We can have a life free of the dread of failure and rejection and calamity through Jesus Christ. And hopefully, by the end of the sermon today, as we leave here, of all the things we can worry about, of all the things that give anxiety, of all the things we could have fear about, that we will have Scripture and an understanding of who God is and what He can do in our life so that we can live fearless and full of faith. And so, if you're there in Matthew chapter 28, I want to read this story and I want to talk a little bit about this story. So in Matthew chapter uh, 8, verses 23 through 27 says this. Now, when he got into the boat, that was Jesus, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And then his disciples uh, came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? I mean, what a story, right? I mean, a lot of times we read these stories on a flat page, and we don't really get the impact of them. But as we think about this, Jesus was teaching the multitudes, and now he was separating himself from the multitudes. He was saying, I want to go, and I want to bring my disciples with me. And he looks at him and says, come with me. And that's how you know if you're a disciple of Christ, by the way. Do you follow Jesus, right? That's the simplest definition in the New Testament about a disciple. Do you follow Jesus? And obviously... Uh, These men here were not fair-weather followers. They had given up their life. They had given up their livelihood. They had given up their way, and they were following after Jesus. And he looks at him and says, hey, I want you to go with me. Come with me. Get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. And so these men had obviously made a commitment to Christ, and they were following after Christ. But then comes verse 24, which is kind of a shocker. It says, and then suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. Now the word here uh, is tempest. And the word is a very interesting word. Uh, Matthew, uh, Matt, the word uh, here that Matthew chose in the Greek was seismos. Uh, suddenly a great seismos was arose on the sea. Um, today, in our world, in our culture, in our English language, we still use that. A seismologist studies earthquakes that studies the thundering of the ground or the shaking of the ground. Um, and it happens when you have this violent shaking or thundering of the ground. The best way I could describe it is when I do a, a cannonball off of the top diving into the kiddie pool, right? Like there's a thundering or shaking of the ground. Well, Matthew used this word as well two other times. Uh, one other time when uh, the Bible says that the earth shook when Jesus died, so much so on Mount Calvary that the, even the soldiers shook and believed in Jesus Christ. And then one other time at the resurrection, 
The earth shook and the stone rolled away and Jesus came out. He was resurrected from the thing. So this was no small storm, right? I mean, this was something that the disciples would have been used to, something they would have been able to navigate. Some of them were fishermen as well. But this great storm, matter of fact, you could call it probably a storm of a lifetime. Immediately, out of nowhere, after they followed Jesus into this boat and it shook them to the core, it literally made them shudder. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand this kind of Christianity because from where I come from and what I learned and what I hear on TV and what I hear from pastors is that if you have a faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you are following after Jesus... There should be no storms in your life, right? Like you shouldn't have to go through these things. And in modern day theology, or maybe if we were to read it in another new translation that would be uh, 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 given to us in a text, maybe it might say they got into the boat with Jesus and they went on a Caribbean cruise, right? And they had all the food they wanted to eat and they had people serve them and they had a great time in the islands and the boat never rocked, right? Like this is what happens when you enter into this Christianity that it's a life full of easiness and a life full of everything's going to be healthy and everything's going to be wealthy and you're going to be so wise. But as we know scripturally, it's a very important part in New Testament Christianity. Being a Christian does not exempt you from seismoses in your life. And when you have these things in your life, you should not be shocked. You shouldn't say, time out, God. I have a pass here. I'm a Christian. Like, like the disciples wanted to say, wait a minute, Jesus, like we're following after you. What's this storm in our life? This is, shouldn't be so. But as a disciple of Christ, we should be ready and expect rough seas and stout winds. You can expect the troubles of the world just like everyone else. And then on top of that, Jesus said, on top of that, you will also have persecutions and tribulations in John 16, 33. He said, just because you are a Christian, not only will you have these things of the world, but you also have this suffering, this tribulation of the world. And so sometimes it shocks us. And sometimes when we think about situations in life, we say, wow, they love Jesus, but they got the coronavirus. That shouldn't be. Wow, they love Jesus and they got cancer. Well, they loved Jesus, but their child passed away. I'm sure if we could interview all those people in Texas, and I'm sure some of them were loved Jesus, and they would stand here and say, we loved God. We prayed to Jesus Christ, and this still happened to my child. Like, I'm sure there are those who love Jesus that happens to. There are people who love Jesus that lose everything they have financially. There are people who love Jesus that have marriage troubles. That was a good time to say amen, by the way. But anyway, there are people who love Jesus that have health issues. There are people who love Jesus that face troubles and trials. And so when I stand up here to say as a Christian, we can have faith and we can trust in God. That doesn't mean you won't have seismoses in your life. Don't walk away from here and say, well, pastor said I can live as, with faith in my life and I don't have to have fear because I'll never have a storm in my life. We've done a great job in the church to try to prepare people for prosperity. We've done a poor job preparing people for, for pain and suffering. But that's a part of life. we got to understand that. And to live fearless and the principles of trusting in God doesn't mean you'll be absent from storms and trials in your life. It's something different. And that difference comes when you make a choice to live by faith. And in the story, I want you to see these principles. Not that you should be shocked by these seismoses in your life, but yet that you know how to deal with them. And in, in the story, the disciples get into the boat, but look in the last part of verse 24 and the first part of verse 25, it says, but, G was, but he was asleep, that he was Jesus. So a great storm comes and they go to the bottom of the boat and Jesus was asleep. And his disciples came to him 
and awoke him. This is verse 25, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. So they literally thought they were dying, like this was a storm of a lifetime. And guess what Jesus was doing? He was sleeping. And that troubled the disciples. That made them angry. That made them question the, they, that made them question Jesus. And they were asking more here in a question sense, not so much as a command. In English, it's kind of hard to see this. But in the Greek, it literally renders, Teacher, do you not even care that we perish? See, that's always the heart of suffering, right? Not that God knows you're suffering, but that does God care that you are suffering? And so they were in the midst of this. Their hearts were full of fear. And they began not to question Jesus' power, but they questioned His character. They questioned who God was. And it's not an easy temptation, is it not? When we get fear in our life and a storm comes in our life, if we're not prepared, the first lie we listen to from the devil is that God doesn't care. That God is not good. That God could care less if you are suffering. And a lot of times when we get into the point for our marriages and for our homes and for our kids and our families and we're suffering and there's pain, we always ask the question when our hearts get gripped to say, God, do you really care? Are you even there? And the unfortunate part, fear destroys our faith in God. And it destroys not just understanding the power of God, it destroys the character of God. And, they, and for him, if God can sleep in our storms, and yet while we suffer, and he can sleep, just like they were talking about this Jesus here, he's saying, does he even care about us? And that was the question he asked. Jesus, like you're here, like what in the world is happening? And for this part, that's what happens. It, it, fear brings doubt and anger and bitterness. There was a dripping bitterness in their heart. And they were saying, we are perishing and you don't care, Jesus. And you know, that's what happens when fear grips our life. It makes us bitter. It makes us bitter towards God. It makes us bitter towards the things of God. And when we want to be in control and we can't control something, and we don't understand the proper theology or the proper understanding of God in our, in our trials and in our, in, in our troubles, we get, we get filled with fear and we begin to get bitter. And when we get bitter, then we understand in our life that's where we begin to doubt. And when we begin to doubt, it fills our hearts with this pain. And we forget, not only do we get bitter, we forget about all the good things that God has done. So we forget who God is and we become bitter towards Him rather than recalling all the things that God has done for us. And instead of having faith, we are filled with fear. And if you look at the verse here, look what happens in verse 25. Then the disciples came to him and they awoke him. And they were saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But look at verse 26. But he said to them, why are you fearful? You of little faith. You know what Jesus said? He looks at him. And this is more of a command than a question. He says, fear not or stop being fearful. Like, you have been through some things with me in the past. And I have been there every single time. Like, why is this such a surprise to you? And I think it would come as a surprise to many that 21 times in the New Testament, Christ commands His disciples to fear not, to take courage, or to be of good cheer. The next closest command is to love your neighbor, right? Or to love God. It only appears eight times. So 21 times, this is important for us to get, right? And this is important for us to understand in our experiences of life, and especially with His disciples. Jesus says, take fear seriously, and He says, don't let it grip your hearts, and for us as Christians, we got to be on guard for this. And when we have these storms of life, we got to be prepared with how we're going to respond to them because if we don't respond correctly, it will grip our life and it makes us bitter and it pushes us away from God rather than draw us closer to God. 
And he's looking at his disciples here and he says, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. And for us as Christians, this is where we get the choice. This is where we can decide that as a follower of Christ, we can stop fear in our life. We have the power to stop fear by faith. And Jesus commands them to fear not, but to have faith. And in our hearts, that's where exactly where the rubber meets the road for us. Like when these things come into our hearts and our lives, are we responding with faith or are we responding with fear? And when we respond with fear, we'll get the results of fear. When we respond with faith, we get the results of faith. And he was just reminding them, here's where it is in your life. If there's a storm that comes into your marriage, you don't need to be further away from God. You need to be closer to God. And the closer you get to God, the more faith you can have in God's purpose and will for your life. If a storm comes into your health, that cancer should not drive you away from God. It needs to drive you towards God. And when you get closer to God, you can have the understanding, the faith, and the purpose that God means in these things. And listen, for us, we're going to have these storms. We're going to have these trials. He made it clear for the disciples. He makes it clear for my life. and He makes it clear for your life. And as we come to these points, the way we react to these and how we, how we trust in, in God over these things is all, makes all the difference in the world. And he shows this to them. Look, look again back in verse 26. He says, he arose and he rebuked the winds and the seas and there was a great calm. So the men marveled and said, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see that? This is the part that I love. When you come to Jesus Christ, and by the way, the disciples got one thing right. They went to Jesus for their problems, right? I mean, we can, we can talk about the disciples all we want to in our lives as well. They knew that when they had a trial or storm in their life, they ran to Jesus, right? And if we can do anything and a storm comes in our life, we need to run to Jesus. That's what I do in my life. When I have something that overwhelms my life, I need to run to Jesus as fast as I can. I mean, I need to get into His presence. I need to get into who He is. And so that's what they did. They had this storm. It overwhelmed them. They ran to Jesus, and He looks, and look what it says, Jesus arose. I love that. I mean, it's not that Jesus didn't care. It's not that Jesus put them on the back burner. It's that when they came to Jesus, He arose. And when Jesus stands and He gets up, He heard, heard, their, he heard their cries in the, midst of their, in the midst of their weaknesses, in the midst of their fear, and He lovingly responds to them. You know, every time that I've called on the name of Jesus, He's responded. He didn't respond by getting me out of the situation, but I knew that His presence was in my life. His presence is in my life. And in the midst of your darkest trial and your deepest need, that when you call out on Jesus, He is there to respond. And I love this part because He arose. He did something about it. And He got up. And look what it says here. He rebuked the winds and the sea. And He, and he tells them that even this, as they marveled, who is this that listens to the winds and to the sea? You know, so many times in our life, we get so upset and we get so fearful and we get so full of anxiety of things that never really happen in our life, right? You know, this, year, uh, this month, I was telling you that we celebrate a lot of things in our family. The months of May and the months of August are always big in our family. In the month of May, we have Aaron's birthday and we have my birthday and I uh, turned 40 this year, so that was kind of a big milestone for me. And um, well, I'm in my 40s. I'm sorry. I better say it that way, right? Um, I, I had a birthday, but we also celebrate our anniversary. And we celebrate 22 years together. And uh, Aaron and I was talking um, yesterday, and you understand, after 22 years, when they want to go to the beach, I go to the beach. So I went to the beach again yesterday. And so as we were walking down, she says, you know, I used to be the youngest teacher at my school. Now I feel like I'm the oldest teacher at my school, you know? 
And I was just talking back and forth with her. And I was getting thinking about our life together and 22 years together and thinking about marriage together. And I get to thinking about all the dumb things that we used to argue over. Of all the things that we used to waste precious moments together with, right? Like, like her being late or maybe me being impatient or maybe trying to get to this point or get to that point, arguing over something with our kids and then fear grips and things that never happened in their life that we've had these discussions and trials and all these things that has taken in our hearts and gripped us and kept us from enjoying the good blessings of God in our life. And when you look back at them, you think now after 22 years, I think, what did it really matter? It didn't matter. Nothing mattered because God was in control and he had all those things in his hands and yet fear gripped our hearts and we got outside of, of trusting in God. And when you do that, fear takes those things and it corrodes your goodness of God in your life. And here were these disciples that were thinking, you don't care, God, and you're letting us waste and our lives are going to end. But none of that was true because Jesus was in control. And when he stood up, he had the power to rebuke the winds in one moment. I mean, he, they went to Jesus and Jesus could do something about it. And in our lives, in our marriages, in our finances, in our jobs, with our kids, is there any issue or problem in your life that you think is bigger than God? Do you think that's bigger than God? And listen, the story would stay the same. And I could stand up here and give you hundreds of testimonies of things that's happened in my life and things that's happened in my job. Even in my job to where I felt like, you know what? I've lost my job. There's no way I can make a, a living for my family or there's a recession or there's this problem, there's that problem and worried myself sick only for one day and one moment. God, somebody would call me and God would provide every single time. Even in this church, I could tell you time after time after time how it was, there was no way this could be done. And especially if you build a church on a state road with a DOT involved, right? I mean, especially when you think about the provision you got to have and how God, even as our old, in our old place, in our old church, praying for a piece of property, how would God ever provide a piece of property in an area where it was millions of dollars for a small church? That was impossible. But guess what? One day, God changed that in a moment. In just one moment. He provided something that there was no way we could ever do in a lifetime. And in your home, in your marriage, in your kid, with your kids, with their education, with their future, with any problem or issue that you have, don't go to God and say how big my problem is. Take your problem and say, look how big my God is. Because in one moment, He can change your spouse's heart. In one moment, He can change your child's life. In one moment, He can change your health. In one moment, He can change your job situation. In one moment, He can do anything and everything. He is God. And when he does it, we marvel and we marvel about it. And we say, who can this be? And you and I and the disciples and thousands before us can stand and give you testimony after testimony after testimony of what God can do in someone's life, even though it looks like no one else could do anything else. Listen, we love as a church to keep a, a record of these things. And we have a blessing jar in the back back there. And we have little tags. And all you got to do is write on that little tag something that God did for you that no one else could do for you. That's what it's all about. Hey, God blessed me in this situation to where, uh, and, and I enjoy as a pastor getting those and reading through those each and every year. I got a whole stack of them. And I keep them every year on my desk. And when I start feeling down and I start feeling pity like God is not working or God is not moving in people's lives, you know what I do? I start reading those tags. And I start reading them. I start reading through them. I start reading, God took care of Tanner's hip. 
God took care of this situation and God took care of this and God took care of that. And it's moment after moment after moment I realize that our problems may be big and our problems may look like they're overwhelming, but they're nothing compared to the power of God. They're nothing. And here they were in the midst of this storm and they called out on Jesus and in a moment he did that and people looked and all of them marveled and gave praise to God. And that always reminds us, and it always should be a testament to us, that if Jesus is in our boat, it doesn't matter what size of storm is on the outside of our boat. That's the point. And listen, in our lives, if Jesus is in your marriage, it's going to be all right because nothing will come into that marriage bigger than God. If Jesus is in your life, nothing is going to come through the purpose of, of God's life. It's going to knock you off that. And it's not going to deliver you from the storms. Listen, this is a great story of deliverance. And he, and he takes them out of the storm. But you can look back through the Bible and see where God, in the midst of those things, the presence of God was with them, even in the midst of those circumstances and, and trials. And in my life, he has been there every single time. He hasn't always done it the way that I've wanted it. And he always hasn't delivered me every time. But I can tell you, he's been with me every single time through it all. Every single one of them. And for us as Christians, we need to have that faith and not let fear corrode our hearts. Because when we do... We begin to doubt God's goodness and we get bitter. And once we get bitter, we get ungrateful and we move away from God instead of closer to God. You know, this morning I was uh, studying through this and just wrapping up some things on this on TV. I was watching uh, Dr. Tony Evans. You guys, anybody know Dr. Tony Evans and a uh, great preacher? And so he used the same illustration I'm about to tell you. So I texted him and said, hey, man, you stole my illustration, you know. And uh, he was like, yeah, man, it was so good. I decided to use it on TV. I was like, okay, yeah, you could have it too. But anyhow, I'm going to share it with you. But if you hear him say it, know that he stole it from me. I didn't steal it from him, all right? And uh, anyways, he told the story. And one of my favorite stories, and one of my favorite people in the Old Testament is Joseph. And if you know and you're familiar with the story of Joseph, it's a great picture of God's providence in his life. And it's a great picture of through midst of pain and suffering and through the evilness of man, how God can prevail through it all. And Joseph, as you know, became the chosen child of his father, and he gave him a coat of many colors. Many times I wonder what that coat looked like, you know? Maybe one that Ric Flair wears or something like that, or Hulk Hogan, you know? I mean, that thing must have been nice. And when they saw that, everyone knew that he was the promised child, and everyone knew that he was. And so he was at home with dad while his uh, brothers were out working in the fields, and they had despised him. They got to the point where they hated him. And so his brother said, let's let him come. And when he comes and checks on him, we're just going to kill him. And let's kill him and take it back to dad and tell him, hey, he, he, he died, all right? And one older brother stood up and said, no, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him off into slavery, all right? Man, what a brother. You know what I mean? Like, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him off into slavery. So that's what they did. They, they took him and sold him off into slavery. And they took him off and they cut his, took and tore his coat of many colors up. They put blood on it. They went back home and told his dad, hey, Joseph's dead. You know, your favorite's gone. Like, pick another one. And they were like, maybe me, maybe him, maybe though, right? And so as he went off, he got put in this place for Potiphar. And Potiphar had a lot of property, he had a lot of land, and so he went to work there. He was such an excellent worker, and he was such an excellent spirit inside of him that he became like the manager of the whole, of the whole uh, estate, the whole plantation part thing. And so he was number one, he was in line, and yet he had no authority because he was just a slave. He had been bought, but yet if there was anything to be done, he was the one who would do it. And Potiphar loved him, and Potiphar cared for him, and Potiphar gave him the best that he had as far as he, as he could. But Potiphar's wife was crazy, and Potiphar's wife 
wife wanted Joseph. And Joseph did not want Potiphar's wife. Like he had a, he had a standard. And so he fled from her many times. But one time she set him up and she lied and said, hey, he made a move on me and I want him out of here. And so there he was, and finally to a place where he was comfortable and he was successful as this person. So they took him, they put him in prison. So they put him in prison, and he's in the prison, and he's working, and he's serving, and he's going through this process, and there was a butler and a baker in this prison. And they were like, man, we've been having these dreams. We've got such a hard time knowing these dreams, and we need someone to deliver us or tell us what these dreams are about. And he says, oh yeah, I can do that. I'll pray to God and tell me what your dreams are. And so sure enough, God gave him this uh, vision, and one, I can't remember which one, the butler or the baker, one of them said, you're about to die and be hung, and the other one said, you're going to get out and be prosperous and go stand before, and be on Pharaoh's court. And so sure enough, the one one ended up dying, but one of them did get out, and they went into Pharaoh's court. And Joseph says, and the guy says, "Man, how could I ever repay you?" And Joseph says, "Man, if you ever get to Pot- if you ever get to Pharaoh, make sure you tell him about me. Here I am, this guy that's this interpreter of dreams. Like, give me a hand up. Like, maybe help me get out of prison. You know?" He says, "Sure enough." So here was Pharaoh. He had this dream, and no one could interpret the dream. So they start asking, does anybody know anyone that can interpret dreams? Well, guess who forgot about him? The baker forgot about about Joseph. And so almost 12 years, he forgot about Joseph. So Joseph sit in prison for 12 more years. And finally he goes, oh yeah, there was this Israelite that could interpret dreams. And so they went and got him. Sure enough, he got before Pharaoh and Pharaoh, he interpreted this dream for Pharaoh, which was a, a land of a famine was coming in the land and he told him we need to save the food. And so Pharaoh took and brought him all up to second in line. And he was living the life. I mean, he had everything that Pharaoh had was in charge, of, uh, Joseph was in charge of. Well, sure enough, his brothers and his family who had experienced the famine decided they needed to go to try to get food. And so they come before Pharaoh and they come before the courts of Pharaoh. And guess who they had to ask for the food? It was Joseph. And if you know the story, Joseph goes through this whole process of forgiving his brothers and he restores this relationship with his brothers and he gives them this food. And yet he restores this process and yet he comes to the end of it. And he says, here's the conclusion of the whole thing. He said, what you intended for evil... I have learned that God meant it for good. And he said, my life is a testament to God taking these things that you meant for evil and God made them good in my life. And he said, I'm going to have two children. I'm going to name both of of my boys. He said, the first one he named uh, Manasseh. You know what Manasseh means? To forget bitterness, to forget pain. And he's had the second one named Ephraim. And Ephraim means to be fruitful. And he says, I'm going to forget the pain that people cause me and the trials and tribulations in my life. And I'm going to be fruitful because I know God has worked all these things together. And I'm here where I am. And I know God was in charge the whole time. Man, I mean, you talk about a perspective in life. And for us as New Testament Christians as well, we have a promise like that too. In Romans 8, 28, and I told this before, I always quote this verse two times a day when I think about it. Every time it's 8, 28 in the morning, it's 8, 28 in the evening. And I always go before the Lord and I say, Lord, whatever may come this day, may you take that and work it together for my good. Because I love you, God, and whatever comes, I want you to work it together for good. And then also at the end of the day, God, whatever you allow to come in my life, that you have worked this to good for my life. It's a great promise. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. And you know, in this scripture as well, the promise is not that all things are good, right? I've heard preachers say that. I've heard Christians say that. I'm sure if you can get a family from Texas up here and say that their child was killed in this uh, massacre and say, isn't that good? God, God said that was good in your life. That is not good. 
Hey, marriage is sometimes not good. Uh, Divorce is not good. Cancer is not good. Health problems are not good. That's not the promise. The promise is if we trust in God, and we should, and as Christians, we should have faith in Him that He takes all things and He works them together for our good. That he takes the bad things and he takes the storms of our life and he takes the trials and the tribulations. And if we have faith and trust in God, we know that he works them together for good. And you know what? In my life, I found out that sometimes when things happen and I go through a storm, immediately I say, that's why God allowed that to happen in my life. And then there are times when things happen and you look back over several years and you don't understand it and you wrestle with it. God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow this to happen? Why is this coming to my life? And over several years, you come to understanding a peace like Joseph to say, you know what, God, I can see that, why that happened in my life and you used it for good. But I can promise you there will be some things come into your life and maybe it comes through a failed relationship or maybe it comes through a death of a child or maybe it comes through a miscarriage or maybe it comes through some other storm in your life and you say, God, I will never understand this, but I still choose to have faith to know that when I see all the story, I realize that you have worked this together for your good, God. And I may not understand it, but I'm trusting in you because you're the God who sees it all and can do it all. And that's what faith is. Faith is trusting God even though you don't understand your circumstances and even though you don't see how the outcome's going to be, to know that God can work it for your good. And this morning, I don't know what you've been through, and I don't know what you're going through, but I can just tell you through the principles of understanding life and the principles of understanding God's Word, the first thing you got to ask is, have you given your life and heart to Jesus Christ? Let me tell you, the most important thing is having Jesus in your boat. That's it. If you have Jesus in your life, then you can, you can understand God's will and purpose for your life. And number two, what are you fearful of, and is it bigger than God? Is it bigger than God? Is there something in your life that you feel is bigger than God? And number three, that we should live by faith and not by fear. And this morning, maybe you just need to say, you know what, God? I don't need to live by this fear anymore. It's gripped my heart. It's hurt my marriage. It's hurt my parenting. It's hurt me as a parent to my child, or it's hurt me in my job. And I don't need to live in fear any longer, but I need to trust in you. And maybe Like Joseph, you need to say, God, I need to forget the pain and I need to be fruitful for what you've done in my life and get the work and and trust in you, God, allow your purpose in my life. And let's pray together this morning.